This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. From the moment the Enterprise appeared at the end of Season 1 on Discovery until the moment Ethan Peck was announced, I never thought we'd actually see Spock on Discovery. Having been proved wrong once before, I was sure we'd never see a direct reference to the menagerie or the cage in Discovery as well, and I was proven wrong again. I guess space is full of surprises, and this week we return to Talos 4 and see what's up. I'm your host, Jeremy Vilmer. And joining me now is Commander Dog over here chewing on a bone in the background. And on the other side of this conversation, he's cold and distant like a faraway moon. Our chief engineer, Chris Noonien Singh. What's up, Chris? Cold and distant? I mean, I guess it is a little chilly over here in Virginia, but uh, I guess I am distant on the exact other side of the country from you. Yeah, and we, are, we are exactly <laughs> one country away from each other. <laughs> so anyhow... How's things? What's going on? Anything to hit on before we start talking about this episode, if memory serves? I will say I was uh, looking forward to watching this again, because earlier this year, when we started, I got right into Discovery. I didn't watch any any of the older stuff yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we went through the cage and the menagerie and all that stuff... I was like, yeah, we can go back to that episode where they go to Talos 4, and maybe it'll, uh, you know, force me to remember things. So, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. A ship in trouble making a forced landing, sir. It comes from the Talos Star Group. Their call letters check with a survey expedition. My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the Space Vehicle Enterprise. Our destination is the Talos Star Group. There's a canyon to the left. We can set you down there completely unobserved. I think it's time to show the captain our secret. This is Vina. Her parents are dead. She was born almost as we crashed. This is all some sort of trap. Are you real? Perhaps they made me out of dreams you've forgotten. Is there any way I can keep them from probing my mind, from using my thoughts against me? I can't help but love you. Let's get back to the ship. I can't. I can't go with you. All right, so we're going to go straight from that jump cut from Jeffrey Hunter to Anson Mount as Pike. And uh, Chris, why don't you uh, lay us or lay the uh, personal log on us? Personal log, Captain Christopher Pike, stardate 1532.9. Still no word from Commander Burnham, but I know she won't give up until she finds her brother Spock. As much as it pains me to think the worst of any Starfleet division, I do hope she locates him before Section 31 does. <laughs> And aboard the NCIA 93, a ship whose name I love to know no end. Yeah, that, that, that was not a very creative uh, choice on the part of whoever came up with that NCIA designation. Yeah, let's let our CIA-esque division of Starfleet just announce to the world that they're the CIA. Yeah, <laughs> just put it on the license plate, you know, we'll... <laughs> Nobody will, nobody will find that suspicious. 
Leland and Giorgio confer with the members of Starfleet Command. Admiral Petard tells Leland that Spock is to be apprehended as soon as possible, and that in helping him escape, Burnham has committed another act of mutiny. This is a real <laughs> habit with her, you know? Yeah, she did it uh, first episode of season one to Giorgio. Okay. All over the place, man. <laughs> the Andorian Admiral asks if they are tracking Burnham's shuttle, to which Leland replies that they only had a trajectory lock for a few minutes before losing its signal. Giorgio adds that Burnham disabled the transponder and would likely hide the sh- uh, shuttle's warp trail. That's always kind of interesting because I remember, or I thought, I always thought I remembered like there were shuttles that didn't do warp originally, but every time I watch an episode, they're all capable of warp, and it just seems to me something that small shouldn't go that fast, you know? Well, I'm wondering if um, even the shuttles use some kind of dilithium fuel source. Maybe that's why. No, oh, that could maybe, be. Maybe it's not like a true like full scale warp trail but since it's dilithium i don't know yeah it could be um we'll, um we'll maybe have to look into that or if somebody's now, checking us out let us know down in the comments maybe yeah patar asks leland if he has an agent aboard discovery and leland confirms that he's got specialist tyler aboard the discovery the admiral instructs leland to inform them if burnham contacts the discovery before closing the channel <laughs> since she was on a roll he adds Perhaps she could find a reason for Discovery to stand down and relay the orders to them. Giorgio contacts Pike and Tyler, telling them that Section 31 would find Spock and Burnham, and they will have a lovely time answering their questions. Pike's skeptical and asks if Georgia was sure that Burnham received the hails from her ship before uh, you know, deliberately ignoring them. Yeah, because that sounds like uh, Burnham, the Burnham we've come to know. <laughs> Pike points out that Spock is also Burnham's brother and that there were many approaches to the issue and that Discovery could be more valuable as an asset to the search. Georgia makes it clear that Discovery's job is to find more intel on the probe. This is the uh, the future probe that from the last episode. Yeah. Adding almost as an aside that Section 31 needs to know immediately if Burnham contacts them before cutting the transmission. Pike calls Tyler out on his relationship with Burnham. Tyler replies it is 100% professional. But, you know, <laughs> come on. But, I, I, you know, we may have, uh, you know, at some point you know. done some things yeah. that could be misconstrued as less a relationship. Than yeah. Less than professional, yeah. Yeah. I do like his turn of phrase, though, that he was in love with her and she was not entirely disinterested in him. <laughs> uh, but now we move on to the part of the story that I care about. meanwhile border shuttle at high warp burnham reviews the information on the file about talos 4 and there you have it her shuttles at high warp Mm -hmm. questions answered there it goes how it had a thriving population until it was devastated by a nuclear war and that the surviving indigenous population developed powerful psychokinetic abilities to entertain themselves (laughs) And the computer also points out that travel to Talos Four is prohibited by Starfleet. Still. Still. Burnham administers a hypospray to Spock and tells him they are approaching Talos and that she hopes he finds what he is looking for. As they enter restricted space, Burnham is astonished to find that they are approaching a black hole and attempts to reverse course and escape it. Spock rushes to the controls and holds Burnham back, taking the shuttle towards uh, the Singularity. 
Burnham realizes that it was a test and comments that they were really on the other side of the looking glass now. So Burnham is just as bad at literary references as she is at taking orders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of knew when Spock was fighting her on um, trying to turn back that that's what was happening. The, yeah. the Telosians yeah. were putting up an illusion so that nobody came around there. Yeah, see, we, we, we all saw the menagerie. I don't think Burnham's ever seen it, is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the menagerie hasn't happened yet in Burnham's oh, time. Oh, that's right, that's so. right. We've all seen the cage. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, all right, so back aboard the Discovery, Paul Stamets takes his still-disoriented husband, Dr. Colber, through the corridors of the Discovery, commenting that things should start to feel familiar. Stamets believes that they should take advantage of this opportunity, adding that he has a bunch of time off, to which Colbert responds like, yeah, because you're always at work. Um, <laughs> this is just like the typical every married couple conversation if one of them is a workaholic, you know? Yeah. Um, as they're going through the corridors, they spot Tyler. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we need to point out to anybody that Tyler's obviously the guy who killed Colbert. And as they arrive at their quarters... Colbert does not immediately follow Stamets inside. He kind of eyeball. Hmm. What's a, what's a polite way to put this eyeball fights Tyler as he walks through nearby turbo lift and they briefly make eye contact before the doors close back on the bridge. Pike asks Arium about the uh, audit of the ship's data core. Arium reports that the probe used multiple SQL injections, but she, <laughs> she was finding. Come on now. You're telling me. This far in the future, we're still using SQL. Come well, on, now. you know this is. Uh, I did strange. not catch that. I did not catch her saying that in the in the episode. But that's crazy. Yeah. Like it's so far in the future, we're still using SQL. Yeah, which well, is a da- basically a database tool. I was gonna say we've been using that for twenty five years for like websites now. So maybe <laughs> you know, maybe I mean that that is a legit. Uh, oh, it that is. is a, yeah. It is a legit thing, an SQL injection. You can definitely ca- take control of um, servers that way, yeah, for sure. But the fact that we still would be using SQL that far in the future is uh, is kind of weird to me. Yeah. Well, maybe an all-powerful future uh, probe would go and find the lowest tech way to do that. You know? Oh, you know what, though? That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like uh, putting golden records on the... On the um, Voyager. On the Voyager. Yeah, except Voyager 6. They didn't really bother with the records on that one, I don't think. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I guess it makes sense because hopefully if an alien civilization was spacefaring, they could figure out a record. Yeah. Yeah. And tapes would degrade over time, whereas like a solid platter won't, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I guess uh, your point about SQL here makes sense. Yeah. I'll, I, mean, I'll, I'll, yeah. I accept it. <laughs> I'm just kind of poking holes at this point, but yeah. Tyler recognizes uh, Killiam as a Vulcan hospital. This is where they find out Spock was, meaning that Pike is looking for Spock and Burnham despite Georgia's orders to collect debris from the probe. Yeah, there's a shocker. Tilly reviews the footage of the DSC-05 being attacked by the squid-like probe, followed by footage of post-self-destruction. They had recovered one metric ton of material from the debris and all of it from the shuttle with none of it from the probe. Pike remarks that they don't know how that's possible, but points out they're doing the job they were given. And then we cut back to Talos 4. Burnham lands the shuttle, telling Spock that she was going to have a look around. Spock just kind of sits there, kind of like Grandpa in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) Burnham grabs (laughs) the... Go ahead. 
least he didn't start banging his cane on the floor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get her, Grandpa. <laughs> uh, Burnham grabs a phaser pistol and steps out onto the surface. All around her are chiming blue leaf plants in the vicinity. When she touches the leaf, the chiming stops for a moment. You know, just like Spock did in the cage. Yep, yep, uh, yep. You know, you know. She suddenly sees a woman approaching the shuttle and hurries back. When Burnham demands to know who she is, Vena explains that she was an old friend of Captain Pike and asks if he's coming back as well. The Telosians communicate with her psychically, and Vena relates to Burnham to transport herself and Spock below the surface so they could examine him, and Burnham realizes that this is why Spock brought her here in the first place and asks Vena for the coordinates. All right, Chris, I'm, we're going to play a game real quick here. I, I wrote this in, in the margin of my notes last night. <laughs> um, all right, so the, the three the three possible answers here are going to be Captain Battelle, number one, and Vina. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. One of them you'll call whenever you're in the galactic neighborhood. Mm-hmm. One of them you promote to first officer. Mm-hmm. And one you abandon on Telos 4. <laughs> Okay, you ask him which is which. Yep. Which are you going with the the, the full pike play, or you got a different uh, different organization there? No, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Yeah. Was, yeah. That's right. I was just curious. I was trying to find a radio friendly version of the uh, FMK game. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got you. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> Since we're a semi family friendly show, you couldn't go with the FMK. I got you. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, that's kind of what I was thinking. I discovered that the woman that plays Captain Battelle is also the actress that played Winona Earp on that show. Because I didn't know where the actress came from, so I looked her up last night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Beaming me into the Telosian's refuge, Burnham is surprised to see Vina walk up to them and asks <laughs> us if she's real, to which the Keeper answers that she's very real, and he materializes with two other Telosians. The Keeper apologizes for the difficulty entering the atmosphere as the illusion was their best defense. Burnham asks him, you know, what's up with all the telepathy? And the Keeper's like, okay, fine, we'll talk with our mouths then. <laughs> Burnham then asks why Spock would risk their lives coming here. And then scanning him telepathically, another Telosian says that Spock is experiencing time as a fluid rather than linear construct. That's got to that, be a weird experience. I would think so. And that conventional logic is unable to help him interpret such an experience. Now, would this apply to things that haven't happened to him yet? No, because if you're experiencing time uh, fluidly, everything has happened to you. Right? Kind of like in Dune, right? Where it's like everything is available and you can see it all. Wibbly, wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, man. That's all that is. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Burnham realizes that Spock knew the Telosians could help him, and the Keeper confirms that Spock knew conventional medicine would be unable to help, uh, and that if the variants continued, he would lose his mind permanently. I guess so, man. I, I cannot imagine if uh, a real human ever got in a situation like that where they, <laughs> I guess he's experiencing all of time all at the same time. All at the same time. Or, yeah, I mean, that's what it would have to be. You're out of order. Pieces are coming here and there. I yeah. Think, yeah. Kind of like Dr. Manhattan, I think, you know, where, yeah, where he experienced everything simultaneously. So you don't know if you're in the future or the past or the present. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, one of the books I've read recently this year was about time travel and like uh, one of the characters jumps back and forth through time and is basically like, you know, I, the one of the other characters asks, you know, when's your birthday? You know, how old are you? And she's like, I 
actually have no idea because of the way that I travel time. Um, I'm probably like 22. <laughs> when is now? <laughs> yeah, that was always like on Doctor Who, like realizing that even though only a couple of years that had gone by, Amy and Rory had aged like 12 years because that's how much time they'd been actually running around for. Yeah. But when they were in the present, it was only like a couple of years. Yeah, it makes sense too that he's, uh, you know, traveling through space and time probably close to the speed of light. Mm -hmm. So you keep coming back to when you left or right after you left. Yeah. So you could be gone for six months and then, you know, boom, you're right back where you were the next day. Yep. (laughs) When Burnham asks how this change of experience could have happened, the keeper replies that it would be easier to show her his thoughts rather than explain it and ask for something in return. The memories of what caused the rift between Spock and Burnham on Vulcan the full experience of their childhood conflict. It's a weird voyeuristic thing there, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't sound like unlike the Telosians. It just seems like a weird focus. Well, they have um, been around humans that we know of. So adding a Vulcan into the mix was probably oh yeah intellectually curious for them. That could be, huh? Yeah. I, that, I mean, that. that's that's my headcanon on on why they would care about that. <laughs> no, I can I can totally see that because they're, they're still zookeepers, basically, or at least that's their their focus. Yeah, and plus seeing how um, humans and Vulcans interact with each other, especially during conflict, would probably be I don't interesting know, or entertaining. And, yeah, at least uh, at least that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> The Keeper explains that this was how they understood and how they had survived. So I guess by experiencing other creatures, things, <laughs> I guess, this is <laughs> this is how they managed to survive. Um, so apparently, like all the other creatures they've been kidnapping and trying to make slave races out of, they've also been using to figure out how to get along, apparently. Makes sense. Yeah. And then... Uh, Michael Burnham bluntly replies, well, you should survive another way. <laughs> the third if only it were that easy. Yeah. Like, we never thought of that before. Oh, Come on. Oh, that's the first time <laughs> that's come up. The third See how th- big my head is? That, that means my brain is way bigger than yours. <laughs> the third delusion explains that there was no other way to save Spock's sanity. Vina advises Burnham not to resist. The delusions dive deeply into our minds, our hopes, our memories, our fears, and even our dreams. One of the Telosians removes the illusion of Vina's youth and beauty, showing her to be scarred and deformed. Yeah. So I remember when this episode came out, a lot of people, afterwards, when she gets her her illusion of youth and beauty back, she does like a little turn and says, this is as real as it gets. All these people on YouTube were saying she was pointing at her chest as if she was talking about like having a boob job, which was one of the dumbest stupidest misinterpretations of a scene I've ever come across. Well, you know, we live in the day and age where uh, being a, uh, how offended you can be is like a game. Yeah, this is true. Let's see who can be the most offended. Uh, And since there isn't much here, let me take this one thing out of a, I won't say out of context, but let me purposefully misinterpret this thing so I can feel offended about this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I just I the stuff that people will do to irritate themselves just drives me nuts at times, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, see she explains that this is how the Telosians found her, you know, and gave her a choice, live as she was now or as she had been before. To save Spock's mind, the Telosians would have to disengage him from logic. 
but Burnham must be the one who pays the price. The Keeper asks if they may watch Burnham relive the memory, and Burnham reluctantly concedes, but demands to see Spock's mind first. You know, you sh- you show me yours, I'll show you mine. That's what she's, <laughs> that's that's the agreement she's agreeing to here. They're not blood related, so yeah, no, we're no, good here. Not that big a deal, I guess. <laughs> um, within his memory, Spock explains to Burnham that he had begun the night she had run away, braving the dangers of the forest of Vulcan's Forge. That was when the Red Angel had appeared to him the first time. He had thought it was a dream or a premonition because the angel had shown him Burnham's death, killed by a beast of the wild. Spock went to Sarek and Amanda, explained where uh, where he had seen her and where she would be, and this allowed Sarek to go and rescue her. Spock performed a mind meld with the angel, showing him the red burst and the powerful projectiles causing devastation on numerous planets. So Spock gets a vision of something wiping out all life on Earth, Telar, Andor, and I think there was a fourth planet. So yeah, I, I don't recall. Yeah, so she passes out just from like the all the the brain tidal wave she just got there, you know. Yeah, she's just getting a small peek into what's going on with Spock right now, and it's uh, it's almost devastating, <laughs> like yeah, uh, mentally overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's a better word, overwhelming. Yeah. So you can only imagine like what's happening in Spock's mind at this point. <laughs> exactly. He's he's flipped his katra. You know, he's seen so much. Uh, All right. So in his and Stamets' quarters on the Discovery, Colbert looks at his reflection in the mirror as Stamets enters with dinner. Stamets had wanted to send some things back to Colbert's mother, but he found that it was just too hard to do, and he wasn't ready to let Colbert go. He then serves up the first course, which is a Brazilian dish I can't pronounce, based on Colbert's recipe, and then... Stamets admits that losing Colbert was the worst thing that had happened in his life, but he was trying to treat it as it, as it was now, a miracle. One he had dreamed about, but is unable to say that it, say it had been since Colbert died. He asks why Colbert is so angry with him, and Colbert basically just says, hey, that's a great question, and then just gets up and leaves. Um, yeah, man, I, I I still yeah I still feel real bad for these two. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a horrible especially- situation. Especially Stamets, he he's taking it hard. Well, yeah, because he wants everything just to go back like the way it was. You know, like hey, if you just you know pretend that nothing happened to you, and I'll pretend that I always cooked dinner and wasn't always at work. What do you say? In his ready room, Pike pours two drinks for himself and Tyler. I wonder if he spit in Tyler's glass while nobody was looking. Um, <laughs> while reminding his Section Thirty One liaison that it was his ship and more importantly his crew and that he would not call off the search and leave two of them out there, particularly while one is accused of a crime Pike is not convinced that he committed. Tyler, speaking from experience, replies that when one is not in their right mind, they were capable of anything. Pike agrees that that may be so, but not with Spock, which we see that a few times throughout his career. Like, anybody can lose their mind except him. And here we see him actually lose his mind. Except I don't think this is the first time that Spock X out of character though. Um, well, I don't, this might be, well, this might be the first time, but this is not the last time that he, no, no, it is, it is not. I mean, that's what I, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Well, cause kidnapping Captain Pike and taking him to Dallas Fort was like, <laughs> there's no way. Oh, well, I guess it was him. Never mind. Yeah. Cause the, like the entirety of that, the beginning part of that episode is, uh, predicated on the fact that Kirk 
doesn't think Spock would have it in him to do anything like that. Kirk doesn't believe it. Bones doesn't believe it. Everybody's like, there's there's just no way. And then, oh, hey, hey Spock, I noticed Captain Pike is in your quarters. <laughs> yeah. Bones is like, you know, I don't really like the guy, but yeah. doesn't seem like something he would do. Yep. Um, <laughs> Tyler warns Pike that the entirety of Section 31, not just Leland and Giorgio, have their eyes on Pike and Discovery. And that the search would help them find Spock and Burnham and bury them. And then he advises that Pike should trust Burnham's instincts. Pike is uh, obviously confused. And if Tyler trusts Burnham more than he does Section 31, why is he working for them? I mean, it makes sense why. What Tyler says here makes sense, though. Why you're sitting here looking for him. If you do happen to find him, then guess who also is going to know you found them? (laughs) Yep. And it'll just help out Section 31. So that's probably why um, Leland is not making too too big of a fuss to Pike about what he's doing, even though he's not really supposed to be doing that. Right. Tyler makes a, a reply about how Section 31 works in the gray areas. He knows they're dedicated people working for the safety of the Federation. And given what he's been through and what he has become, he believes he could be helpful in Section 31. I imagine he'd be ready to catch the death sentence if he didn't go to Section 31, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, w- I, was just, I was just thinking about that same thing, too. Like, military folks. Bad things that you do in the military definitely outshine uh, however many attaboys you may have gotten over the years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's weird that uh, Tyler is stationed back on the same vessel that all that stuff went down on yeah um, i could see i could i could see section 31 or cia real cia or military keeping somebody like that around but oh absolutely look at what we did with all those german scientists post-world war ii oh yeah operation paperclip and all yeah, that good stuff we're like hey you know <laughs> we can we can try you guys and shoot you or you can just come work for us what do you think yeah now, um, yeah, I, I think there's probably a little bit of that going on with Tyler here, too. I would think so. I mean, that's usually how you motivate somebody in that sort of situation. But it's not as if uh, after the scientists got uh, over here from Germany that we just kind of sent them back to Germany to do things. No, this is, I mean, we made them move. We're like, okay. That's pretty much yeah. what's happening here, though. Yeah, that is. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Well, you know, I guess. It's a drama, so I guess that that plays in here, you know. Oh, and also, by the way, Tyler, uh, that guy that you killed was resurrected somehow, so you're going to see him again. He's a and he he probably is not going to like it. Yeah, (laughs) and yeah, he may look little, but you should see him with his shirt off, dude. He's. (laughs) I know. I was just telling my wife that same thing because when they fight in the later scene, I was like, uh, "There's zero chance that Tyler would be holding his own right now." Yeah. Like, have you seen that man without a shirt on? No, no chance. I mean, unless uh, Ash is similarly ripped, but I don't think he is. <laughs> yeah. well, that's the thing. I, I guess they both look kind of small. So, I mean, I guess they both could be, but yeah, I mean. That's fair. I, I got a feeling that uh, uh, old Ricky Colbert there could, <laughs> could gorilla press slam uh, uh, Tyler over his head, you know? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Later walking the corridors, Pike is approached by Saru who tells him that someone on board has accessed the transceiver array and sent out three encrypted and unauthorized subspace transmissions. Large bursts with petabytes of data. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, this scene was was, uh, cool because obviously everybody's like looking at him like even before Saru was like, nah, that's your command code. (laughs) Yeah. 
But it makes sense uh, given what we know has happened to a certain bridge crew member. Yep. I think that she's the one responsible for that. Well, and there's that there's that thing, that Alfred Hitchcock thing. He's like, you know, you show a couple at a table discussing something, and then you show a bomb under the table that they know nothing about. So we know what Arium's up to, but nobody, yeah. else, nobody else does, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, uh, I don't think it has her, like, with the... It doesn't show her all the time with the red blinky eyes, but like just the look she has on her face whenever the camera pans to her during these moments is like, oh. <laughs> yeah, she does the little Dr. Evil pinky in the side of the mouth. Basically. <laughs> Saru is unable to determine where it is being sent, but Pike believes they can find out who, as not just anyone can access the array. Whoever it is, Saru assures him, they will find out. Back on Talos 4, Burnham awakens with a start, and Spock is standing some distance from her. Now, very lucid, and he's, he's kind of composed. She mentions how he had seen the Red Angel, first as a child, and then again a few months ago, Spock confirms. Burnham clarifies she was asking rhetorically, to which Spock tells her to at least ask something he hadn't asked himself already. Burnham then becomes serious, thinking on the devastated planets that they had seen, including Andoria and Earth, and wondering if the angel was a time traveler. When Burnham begins to say that there was so much she wanted to talk to him about, Spock coldly rebuffs her, telling her that he was not there to absolve her and that it was not about her feelings. So take that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, now she's still trying to talk him down and tells him that he needs family. An interesting choice of words coming from you, Spock replies, before continuing as they had a great responsibility at hand. He explains that the angel had a quantum field around it and that he was unable to infiltrate, but the thoughts he received from it in the mind meld were in fact human, much to Burnham's surprise. There's your twist for this episode, folks. <laughs> Burnham waves that off, telling him to show her more. Spock's memories turn out of the psychiatric unit on Starbase 5 as he furiously scribbles equations, maps, and other data on the floor of his cell. This looks like he has gone completely batty. When you see these rooms like this, where it's just like every inch is covered in writing. Oh, yeah. I saw a movie about the Marquis de Sade one time where he was using his own excrement and every inch of the walls had been written. A story had been written in his poop. So oh. that was kind of what I was thinking when I saw this. That's how you leave your mark on history, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. That's it, folks. The psychiatrist enters his cell accompanied by two security officers. Psychiatrist explains to Spock that there have been signals detected across the galaxy, just like the ones he described. Spock is taken aback to realize that it wasn't a hallucination at all, but a premonition. When asked what he thinks the signals are, he believes they are an attempt to communicate. During the questioning, Spock says that the really important question to ask is how he can remember tomorrow. So we're, you know, kind of hinting at the. His memories are not in the correct order, and different things are hitting him at different times. Yeah, I mean, because he's experiencing all of time, like right now. Yeah. So you could remember yesterday and uh, next year. Yep. So he uh, now sees it was a mistake to commit himself and decides to leave. The psychiatrist says it would be premature as Section 31 officers were waiting to take him to a specialized facility because his mind was in crisis and that the Vulcan part of him needed time to heal. Spock replies that she was correct. Time had something to do with it. He then knocks out the psychiatrist and both the security guards. 
the internal vision version of Spock then basically directly asks uh, Burnham if she sees murder anywhere in this. Yeah. I also like the fight choreography they did here because of how composed Spock was while he was like doing Vulcan jujitsu on him. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Spock no, is normally like that though. Yeah, I mean that's how he's fighting. Go. I just I just yeah. found it interesting when you choreograph a fight for a Vulcan that they didn't just, you know, do whatever. They actually made it fit with his species, you know. Yeah. Back aboard the Discovery, an agitated Colbert enters the mm. mess hall. Here we go. <laughs> and approaches Tyler's table, kicking the chair across from him and uh, knocking his food tray off the table. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how I've seen this uh, this scene play out in lunchrooms in my high school. Oh, yeah. As Saru, Tilly, Arian, and others uh, watch in stunned silence, Tyler apologizes <laughs> and tries to explain <laughs> how it was not him who killed Colbert. Look, dude, it wasn't me. The doctor acknowledges that it was Voke and then <laughs> demands that he brings him out. Mm. He uh, knocks the table aside and shoves Tyler. And then uh, Tyler's like, hey, you know, that's not really how, the, how it works. And the two begin kind of like a shoving slap fight jujitsu match where uh, Colbert like literally just slams him on a table. I mean, just up and down onto a table. Colbert's kind of starting to break apart, though, as he's, you know, trying to beat him up. They've got each other in a pretty good clinch, and then he basically says, I don't even know who I am anymore, to which Tyler responds, look who you're talking to, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the adage that, um, and this is kind of an extreme example, but revenge isn't always the answer no. to what's getting you down. But no. what I did like about this scene was that um, Tilly was going to go in there and try to break it up, but, like, Saru was like, nah, you got to... We all let this play out. They need this, or at least I, Colbert does. <laughs> I actually thought, I thought that was interesting for Saru because imagine Saru pre ganglia falling off. He'd be hiding under a table or something. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, he would probably make more of an. Well, he would also probably make more of an effort to break it up. Yeah, or at least uh, have or people do it. He would. He would have let people go in to break it up. But now Saru is like, no, 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 just let them, just let them beat each other up. Well, we'll yeah, I mean, because during uh, the whole fight, it's obvious they're pretty even handed. Like. Yeah. No one's going to really come out on top for real. Yeah. Nobody's going to get killed. You know, nothing, nothing too dire is going to happen. Yeah. Nobody even had any marks on him after it was all over. Yeah. In the turbo lift, Pike questions Saru why he allowed the fight to go ahead. Saru explains that he felt the confrontation was necessary and unavoidable catharsis for both Colbert and Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it makes sense. 100%. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine, like, if a fight broke out at work and everybody just stood there, hey, hey, it's cathartic. Just just let them go. Um, yes, uh, it's kind of like that episode in Battlestar Galactica oh. where they set up the boxing ring and yeah. rank doesn't matter and you're allowed to challenge whoever you want and beat the crap out of each other. Well, there you go, yeah. When Pike points out that it wasn't necessarily by-the-book conflict resolution, Saru <laughs> replies that Starfleet Manual has no guidelines for dealing with humans and Klingons grafted to each other's bones and a ship's doctor who's returned from the dead. That's that's accurate. Yeah. I'm sure it doesn't like, address you know, that like at all. <laughs> yeah, we kind of have to make the, the call on the fly here. You know, We don't really have any experience to go from. <laughs> Pike comments that perhaps his own evolutionary change, Saru might have made a different call. And yep. Saru concedes that that's probably likely. Yeah. Given the unusual circumstance, Pike is willing to overlook the incident, but makes clear he does not want it to happen again, and that all crew on board, Saru included, are to resolve any conflicts within the uniform code of conduct. I think that's only a fair request. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, okay, man. You you got it. You did it. But I'm about to ask you not to do it again, yep. please. <laughs> there you, your experiment has been run. Now it's done. <laughs> you guys uh, shake hands and hug and apologize. Yep. And uh, promise me this won't happen again. We're all going back to Gene Roddenberry's no <laughs> conflicts on the ship. Okay. <laughs> when Pike enters his ready room, he is shocked to see Vina standing in front of him and wondering. His, his reaction is really good. It's like believable. Yeah. You know. And then when she points out that she's not used to him being afraid of her, I actually felt bad for her. Because, like, for her, for the last four years or whatever it's been, she's been living with Pike on Talos 4. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And now she's here with the real Pike, and he's scared of her. So, or probably not scared of her, but scared of the circumstance. Yeah, but I, I he he had to have known what was happening. Well, you would think, right? I think it was more he was surprised more than, like, scared. Yeah. I think. I don't know. Well, I mean, she it, actually it was, says, I'm not used to you being afraid. No, I mean, I get yeah. it, but it, it was hard for me to tell from his uh, facial expression what was actually happening. Sure. I didn't get the sense that he was afraid. He was just, like, not maybe, Shocked. maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe not afraid of her specifically, but just, I don't know. I didn't get the sense that he was afraid, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. She explains to him that when he had come to Talos, uh, she had been alone for a long time. But then the Talosians were decided they were unsuited for each other. So he left and she felt worse because now she knew what she had lost out on. Pike admits that he had thought about her a lot since then and wished that she could have come with him. She assures him that she didn't need to. The Talosians had brought him back for her. And she admits that that's what's kept her sane. Yeah, but then he's like, well, what about me? I've had to not be around you all this time. Yep. <laughs> I'm glad things worked out for you, but... uh, <laughs> No, I mean, that's I mean that's a, a fair response, and that was basically his response. Um, you know, he's asking if this was real, and uh, her pat answer to how real are you is always it's as real as you want it to be. That's <laughs> something she says over and over again to everybody, apparently. Yeah, I mean, she was, I don't think she said those exact lines in the cage, but she definitely insinuates very similar things throughout oh, that, yeah. too, once I, Pike catches on to what's going on. I think she says something like, I'm as real as you want me to be in the cage, or something something more to that effect. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But, yeah, she, same gist, for sure. Yeah. So, she points out that the explosions, have, you know, can project that far away, but it's really difficult with that, that great distance in between them. She tells him there was someone who needed to, he needed to see. Pike turns and sees Burnham with three explosions behind her. Oh, yeah, because uh, if you remember back in the Menagerie, that whole thing with Kirk and the Admiral was just a projection, if I remember right. Yep. While they're on the shuttle. Yeah, the Admiral was a projection the whole time. Yeah. So, we have seen that they can do it. Yeah. Burnham explains that she had found Spock and that he directed her to bring him to the Telosians and that she had learned the truth. Spock was indeed innocent and there were no murders. She was communicating via Telosian telepathy because subspace was likely to be traced. When Pike asks what Section 31 wants Spock for, Spock himself steps forward and responds that they wanted his memories of the future. He tells Pike he has seen the end of their current timeline and to avoid it, they must follow the angel's design. He admits that he never thought he would ask this of anyone, but nonetheless asked Pike to take him on faith. And we're back to the theme of the season here, you know. And oh, yeah. Him, yep. And tells <laughs> him he must come for them immediately if he can. The Telosians are unable to keep the projection up any longer as the image of Spock, Burnham, and Talos fades. 
Vina tells Pike to hurry for his friends as they were counting on him before her projection fades also. In a wrecked mess hall, Stanley suggests Colbert should have his injured <laughs> hand looked at. And Colbert's like, nah, you know, it's something I can feel and it doesn't need to be fixed. Which is a fair thing because for men it is hard to sometimes deal with your feelings. And usually we just kind of exist in a void of our feelings. And the fact that he actually wants to feel something is probably healthy in a way. Where Stanley's is doing the, hey, let's just, you know, just go get it fixed. We'll, we'll move on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I just, this whole storyline, really, this whole storyline with these two is way more entertaining to me this time around than the Tallow stuff was. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I love these two, though, as characters. No, uh, no, no. no and, and that's Colbert, fair. Man. I love like, them. Because, like, we're <laughs> invested in their relationship, yeah. you know? Yeah, they're, they're great characters. Yeah. But, yeah, for me, this whole episode was just about revisiting Talos and having Spock back. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about some of that sure, stuff sure. Uh, at the end. But <laughs> yeah, uh, Stanley suggests that they uh, that he come home and Colbert rebuffs him, just saying, "Hey, that's like not my home anymore. The guy who lived there is dead, you know, and he he wants to kind of go and do his own thing on his own now, you know." Stamets kind of pouts a little bit and he heads back to engineering. He's got a great like uh, the the actor that plays. Um, Stamets, uh, Anthony, what's his name? Uh, Rap, uh, Rap, Anthony Rap. Rap. Anthony Rap. He has got a good um, face for. I think Memory Alpha says he 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 like sullenly gives in. Stamets has a just good facial features for all things sullen. Sullen and dejected. Those are <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does those two faces fairly well. Yeah, uh, he was like that in Rent too. But yeah, this is. I don't know. I like his facial yeah. expression sometimes, he, even though. Even though sometimes they, they seem like a little bit overdone, but, you know, that's just part of him as a person, I guess. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, who, I don't know who his acting teachers were, but actors, I'm always fascinated by acting because I don't know a lot about it. And I, I don't, you know, I don't dabble in it at all. But the more I hear about it from friends of mine who are actors, the more fascinated I am with the whole process. Yeah, plus uh, Anthony Rapp came from theater, not, yeah, you know, not, not, not regular and, movies. And I, f I feel like that's a different genre of acting if you will like oh, it is, there's some different to, things going to, on yeah when you do theater you have to project everything to the, to the guy in the back you got to make sure that everything you do is visible way back there you know yeah so that that's probably why he his i won't say over so i won't yeah i won't say overdoes it because yeah. I, I don't ever feel like they're overdone but yeah they're they're definitely way more expressive than like the you know your run-of-the-mill tv yeah. actor he, he does not go for subtle <laughs> that's for sure yeah <laughs> As Stamets goes to leave the mess hall, Pike orders a black alert, intending to make a spore uh, drive jump to Talos 4, uh, <laughs> despite it being in restricted space. Just as Arium initiates a spore jump, however, the drive disengages due to a failure in the spore hub. Tilly reports corruption in the duotronics, corruption that appears to have been introduced manually. When Pike asks if, he had, if this has happened before, Tilly replies it was nothing like this. They ran a level three diagnostic of the spore drive every 10 hours. So someone must have interfered with the system. Can't imagine who that would have been. Hmm. At that moment, Tyler waters in. It <laughs> <laughs> looks a little bewildered about the black alert. Pike explains the intention of going to Talos to retrieve Spock and Burnham. But someone appears to have thrown a monkey wrench in the uh, works, you know? 
Yeah, if I recall when I first watched this episode, I kind of got the feeling that it was Tyler doing it. I mean, we had already seen Arium do the red eye thing, but like, I don't think it occurred to me. I think I, I was thinking, you know, Voke's still in there and Tyler doesn't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I could have seen that. I think if I remember, remember right, it seems like they kind of were leaving that open as a, a very probable thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and then Tyler asked like, hey, who, who, who did that? And then uh, Security <laughs> Chief Non replies pointedly <laughs> that it was someone who wanted them to stay put. And Saru also mentions that uh, the unauthorized transmissions. Oh, here it is. Yeah, this yeah. is this is where they like do the finger pointing thing. Yep. Tyler's like, "Hey, I, I didn't do it. If I did it, I would know if I did it." You know. <laughs> would you? <laughs> well, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, so Tyler keeps on denying it, even though the transmissions were sent using his command codes. Pike mentions that he's learned Section Thirty One has begun using invasive neural techniques, and uh, it may have been used on Tyler without his knowledge. Tyler is not convinced, though. Pike orders Detmer to set a course for Starbase 11 at maximum warp uh, and a radio ahead that they need repairs. I believe he has uh, Tyler th- taking those quarters, not the brig, though, right? Yeah, but I'm I'm pretty sure there's security station outside the door, I would bet. Oh, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because he's an officer. Typically, the people on Star Trek don't necessarily throw officers in the brig. Yeah. They, um, they get house arrest. Basically, house arrest yeah. with security standing outside. Yep. Saru points out that Starbase 11 is only two light years from Talos 4. Basically, you know, Pike catching Pike mid wink and nod here, you know. As Arium returns to her station, the three lights that she had seen during the probe's attempted computer breach flash in her eyes. Bum, bum, bum yeah. again. Now we're, now we're getting caught up. Now we're getting fed the right direction, you know. Mm hmm. She purports to board the shuttle. Burnham thanks Vina for her help in saving Spock. Vina tells her that Discovery will be there soon and there's not much time. However, Burnham still needs to show the Talosians her memories. Vina warns her about letting the Talosians force payment. You get an idea that if they go in without without your permission, it's going to be kind of nasty. <laughs> you know, like completely against your will and, and other... Uh, Oh, you know, I'll let you guys draw your own uh, analogies to what what we might be talking about here. (laughs) Um, Spock uh, says that he has already shown Burnham all she needs to see. Burnham implies that now he has to share one of her memories, the price she agreed to for his recovery. Okay, so now we get this version of them as young people, and the actor that plays young Spock, I find, is just way too cute and precocious, seeming to actually come off like a Vulcan. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, especially in this scene, because yeah. like, uh, he's definitely showing a lot more human side, which, I mean, it makes sense. Well, yeah, it's a yeah, kid. If, if he's a kid and he's had no training to suppress any of that. But here we go with the logic extremists again. Apparently, they're going to keep, you know, the logic extremists keep going after them because, you know, not only did Sarek marry a human, now they've adopted one. <laughs> um, Burnham uh, is distancing herself, referring to the, the parents as Spock's family and not her own basically worrying about the separatists attacking his home. And he keeps pointing out, oh, it's our family. And, and uh, she's like, no, 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 your family. They start swapping in and out with adult and child versions of themselves. But basically what it comes down to is Burnham goes straight up cold and attacks a small child with some very, very vicious language. And that is what, what injured their relationship. 
Yeah, she's doing the um, you know, to help you thing. Yeah, which uh, I think the first time I ever saw that happening was um, a book or a TV show, and somebody was doing it to like an animal. Yeah, go, <laughs> go back to the forest. I don't yeah. even like you. You're stupid and ugly. Run away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was. I mean, that was what basically. That's what damaged their relationship. She calls him. Um, was a weird little half breed. Yeah, weird little half breed and a freak. So he says he loves her. Burnham pushes back on that. And he says, you can't love anybody. You're like a computer. You're like a cold distant moon somewhere. Spock is cutting in and out of his child and adult forms here. So they can really drive the point home that this is happening now, but it's a memory from the past. Uh, I don't know how I felt about this whole scene. I thought it was kind of weird and voyeuristic and strange, but I guess we get a little character growth out of it, but it is overwrought and emotionally wrung out. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, Discovery in general is well, like in, that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of their thing. It's, the, <laughs> it's bar for the course for Discovery, yeah. for better or worse. And I know uh, some people on Reddit like it, oh, uh, yeah. you know, no, no, no. You don't know, like it at all. <laughs> that's kind of the thing. It's that, like, if there's a type of Star Trek you like or a type of filmmaking you like, right now, Star Trek has got you covered. Yeah, They've pretty much. Different things for different people. I, I think it's pretty cool, actually. So Discovery is approaching Talos 4 at maximum warp with Leland's NCIA 93 close behind them. <laughs> Bryce reports that the Section 31 ship is hailing. Pike knows that with Tyler confined to his quarters, he wouldn't be the one telling Section 31 where they were. He tells Bryce to answer the hail. Leland tells Pike he knows where he's going and orders him to stand down. Last warning, Chris Leland replies again, ordering him to stand down uh, before cutting the channel. Pike orders Detmer to take them out of warp over Talos 4. Once in orbit, he instructs Oasekon to scan for their people. Owo quickly finds them and locks on with transporters. However, Tilly reports that Section 31 is also locked on with their transporters. Leland hails again, telling them to disengage with his transporter beam where Spock and Burnham will be torn apart atom by atom. Pike tells Owo to mute the screen and stands in silence while the crew awaits his orders. And then Vina kind of pops up in his ear here and says, Hey, you got to let everybody go. You got to let me go. You got to let them go. You got to let everything go. And it's the only way that, that there's a way out of this. So Pike tells OO to disengage the transporters mm. and Burnham and Spock are beam aboard Leland's NCIA 93 ship. And Leland tells Pike that his cooperation will be noted in the after-action report and uh, orders Pike to report to Starbase 11 for disciplinary uh, disciplinary action before cutting the channel. His ship then warps away. <laughs> Giorgio notes that Leland looks exceptionally pleased with himself and wonders if he isn't surprised that Pike gave up so easy. Leland thanks her for her insight, <laughs> but this time he will do the talking. Oh, I love, I love Giorgio so much. Yeah. <laughs> she really is great. Uh, back on orbit, uh, the Discovery in orbit of Talos, Saru detects a shuttle coming up from the surface. Owo tries to scan it, but the scanner's being blocked. Pike realizes what's happening and tells them not to hail them because they wouldn't want to risk the transmission being detected, ordering the shuttle brought aboard and telling Saru to accompany him to the shuttle bay. Back aboard Leland's ship, Leland asks Burnham why she was on Talos. She does not answer, simply smiling at him. Leland <laughs> tells her it would be easier if she answered him or it could go harder. And she's like, yeah, I don't think so. Say goodbye, Spock. And Spock gives him the old Burns and Allen. Goodbye, Spock. Uh, I wonder if anybody younger even knows the Burns and Allen thing now, you know? 
I don't, I had no idea, but obviously I've heard many, (laughs) many different versions of say goodbye blank and then goodbye blank. (laughs) When uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen, their old TV show at the end of the night when they'd sign off, George would say, say goodnight, Gracie. And he'd say, goodnight, Gracie. And that's how they ended every show. (laughs) Sure enough, in Discovery Shuttle Bay, the real Burnham and Spock step off the shuttle. The televisions had projected them aboard Leland's ship. Leland tells uh, Giorgio she could have warned him about the scope of the Telosian abilities, to which Giorgio smugly replies that she wanted to see how he explained himself to the admirals. Back aboard the Discovery, Pike asks Spock and Burnham to explain about the Red Angel, to which they say it's human. So he's changed the current timeline, a timeline in which all galactic life will be eradicated. Because of Section 31's failure to secure Spock and Burnham, however, Discovery is about to become the most wanted ship in the galaxy. Pike half-jokingly asked Spock if the Red Angel told him anything on how to deal with this. <laughs> Spock replies that he didn't, but based on his limited experience as a fugitive, the only thing he could really suggest is run. <laughs> Pike begins telling the crew that he cannot ask them to uh, participate in an act of disobedience, but before he gets very far, Detmer <laughs> asks him for the course. Tilly adds that this was probably best that they got moving. The rest of the crew gives their silent support. Pike orders Detmer to take them away from Talos at maximum warp. And that's kind of where we end this episode. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. did want to point out, and this is for your benefit, in the tradition of classic Doctor Who, Talos 4 was shot at a rock quarry, the Lafarge uh, quarry specifically. Back on classic Doctor Who, all the alien planets were shot on quarries. (laughs) Yeah, so, Chris, what was your... You and I discussed a little bit ahead of time. What was your impression of this episode on this watch through? So, yeah, like I said, when I first watched this, the stuff that happened in the Cajun Menagerie wasn't very forward in my mind. Obviously, I'd known about it and I'd watched them in the past. But so this time I was thinking, well, maybe because I've been immersed in this the last couple months that, you know, I'll I'll pick up some new things. Nope, I did not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I felt like the... uh, I don't know. I'm probably complaining about something that is not a problem. I just wanted more. I don't know. I wanted more Talos. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where I was with it as well. The fan nostalgia, I think, took over pretty heavily on this one. Because when you look at it, the Talos stuff was all basically just a rehash of what they've done with Talos before. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking, you know, maybe I'd just forgotten enough of the cage or the menagerie to not be picking up on some of this, uh, on some things that are happening. But nope, nothing, nothing new was really, was really uh, introduced or anything like that with Tallow. So, you know, I was kind of a little disappointed about that. But like I said, the main thing I was really liking about this episode is the uh, continuation of the Stamets and Colbert saga we got sure, going on yeah. right now <laughs> yeah that's probably i mean for me that's probably the strongest b story of the episode i was you know obviously i'm more interested in what the stuff happening on talos what did you think about the telosian redesigned makeup it was weird that their head didn't move like they're they, you know, they did that they did that weird glowing blood flow thing though yeah that's that yeah i don't know they 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 kind of sort of look like klingons with Instead of having a ridge, it's just like the bone structure is smooth underneath. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I did, you know, uh, YouTube is introduced like the new community uh, tab. So I did a quick, uh, just to throw something up there, I did a quick picture poll where I put up a picture of the original Telosians and the uh, the new redesigned um, Keeper. 
And between that and Twitter, four to one, everybody that answered preferred the redesign to the original. I prefer the original. So I think there's something just about that older makeup that is much more disturbing to look at. And Yeah, I mean, looking at the picture that you put up there, I mean, uh, that makeup is really good looking, like for the time. Yeah, it's, it really looked great. And it was like before you knew that it was women playing men in the roles with men voiceovers, they really do seem alien. And yeah. this design just looked like every other rubber forehead alien on Star Trek. The new yeah, that's probably what I meant when I was talking about the similarities with uh, Klingons. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of where we came in. Uh, I want to, pre- you know, th- thank you to everybody who did answer that. Anything else you wanted to comment on before we uh, let this episode go? I mean, again, I've said this a couple times since finishing Strange New Worlds, and I didn't pick up on it much the first time around, but just how dark everything is in Discovery. Like, even the ship is dark where you would think, oh, this is a main passageway. Maybe we should light it better. Nope. (laughs) We'll just have some mood lighting and black acrylic floors. Yeah, just some real, like, OSHA hazards happening there, you know? (laughs) Yeah, where, where's the Federation version of OSHA when you need them? Yeah, exactly. Um, I still enjoyed this episode. I think knowing what's going on with the Red Angel story might have hindered it a little bit more than the first time I watched it. But overall, I still liked it. Yeah, I, it, it wasn't bad. I just thought there was more with the Talos story there to be discovered after having watched The Cage in the Menagerie uh, not too long ago. Yeah. I did, but there really wasn't. I did think that maybe this early Pike on Discovery, he does brood a little bit more than he does on Strange New Worlds. He was still like a little more like dark and and uh, not quite you know his cheery self all the time. You know. Well, that makes sense when you consider the fact that at the end of this season he sees how he's gonna die. Yeah, yeah. So that may that may make you um, you know, that could either like destroy you or like um. You know, every day is like a yellow type deal. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he took the ladder uh, when re- taking command back over of the Enterprise. Yeah. And that's why he's not so dark and broody. Yeah. I do love some of the decision making he makes on Strange New Worlds where he's like, they're, they're like, sure, uh, sir, we're not sure if the ship will take it. And he's like, oh, she'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be just fine. Let's go ahead and go on in. <laughs> Yeah, and that's another thing, like, when you try to put Uhura in crisis, like, she's not going to die, we're all good here, Pike's on the ship, nothing's happening to him, and ergo, probably nothing's happening to the ship, so we're probably fine here. Everybody's probably okay. Well, since we're done with this week, where are we headed next week? Oh, well, Burnham is lost in a ruined hospital. Her room is destroyed by a tiny chemical. With the help of a bitter cyborg, who might that be? She must inject a dangerous serum in order to avert disaster and save her ship. Now that sounds like a great episode. I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, All right. Well, if you guys have any questions, comments, or theories you want to run by us, hit us up on our website at strangenewtrekshow.com or follow the links in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice. Please rate, review, slash like, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to us. It's one small step for you, but a giant leap for this show. Special thank you to Miguel Esparza for the Strange New Trek theme, and Will Harding for all his hard work over in the YouTube department. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to set your phasers to sun, and join us next time when we're on to the next Planet of the Week.
come on. You know, I don't think I can do an episode of any podcast without my mom trying to call. Yeah, I was about to ask you if that was your mom. <laughs> yep. I've never gotten through one episode of any podcast without my mom trying to call me. Between your mom and the dog, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs>